It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. July 16th, 1982 was just another normal evening for George Carrillo. The 42-year-old came home from a long day at work and kissed his girlfriend, Juanita Lopez. Over dinner, he glanced out a window to watch the summer sun setting over San Jose, the largest city in Northern California. But his life wasn't as idyllic as it seemed. After dinner, he went to his bedroom and injected himself with heroin, just like most nights. But right away, something felt different. It was all wrong. The drugs burned hot through his veins, unlike anything he'd ever experienced before. He began to hallucinate and eventually passed out into a narcotic-induced sleep. The next morning, he awoke with a start. He could barely move. It felt like his body was working in slow motion. George thought back to the bags of heroin he'd recently purchased in Mountain View. Did the drugs have something to do with how he felt today? But his thoughts were increasingly muddled, just like his movements. George's body was slowly freezing with each passing moment. He didn't realize it yet, but his life had already changed forever. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life-or-death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. We'll also analyze all the evidence and try to find an answer. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our first and only episode on the case of the frozen addicts. In 1982, six heroin addicts found themselves immobilized as if frozen. For over seven years, Dr. J. William Langston worked to save their lives. On the evening of July 1st, 1982, 42-year-old George Carrillo injected himself with heroin. From the minute the drugs hit his veins, something didn't feel right. When he woke up the next day, he could barely move. 
His body wasn't working the way he wanted it to. He was in a hurry to get out the door because he had an important court date, but he was having a hard time even getting dressed. His girlfriend Juanita wasn't feeling well herself, but she had to help George get ready. They couldn't afford for him to violate his parole and go back to jail. She did her best, but it was nearly impossible to get George's nice button-down shirt on. His arms were rigid. He could barely bend them. Time was ticking. He needed to leave. Juanita was concerned, but figured George would be just fine after the drugs left his system. At least, she hoped so. She didn't want him to get caught violating his parole. She helped him into his Volkswagen and prayed for the best. George could barely put his foot down on the gas pedal as he pulled down the street, but he was determined to make his court date. However, his right arm was now stuck, rigid against his body. Driving was nearly impossible with only one usable arm, and it took an immense amount of concentration. Somehow, miraculously, George arrived at the courthouse safely. But when he stepped out of his vehicle, he stumbled. George braced himself on his car door. Things were getting worse. He tried to walk forward, but moved with an awkward gait. He crashed into the trash cans and bushes as he made his way to the courthouse entrance. Before he could walk through the doors, a guard saw him and thought, understandably, that George was intoxicated. He was arrested on the spot for violating his parole. In the Santa Clara County Jail, George's symptoms worsened. In his cold, dark cell, he could hear the voices of other inmates and make out figures walking by. But he couldn't move or interact with them. Guards didn't take much notice of him. They had more important things to deal with. There were inmates actively causing disruptions while George was just lying there. He was alone and terrified. All he could do was wait for help. By the sixth day of his incarceration, his condition had deteriorated. He couldn't even speak. Finally, George was examined by doctors, but they were skeptical. This didn't look like any recognizable illness. Perhaps George was faking it to get out of jail. It wouldn't have been the first time an inmate tried something. They gave him Benadryl, a drug known to reverse the effects of tranquilizers in case George had been drugged by his guards. That was the only explanation that seemed to make sense. Considering George taken care of, they sent him back to his cell. But the Benadryl had no effect. George continued to lie in the bed, unable to move or tell anyone of his anguish. After a few more days, he was sent back to the hospital where his blood and urine were tested for any drugs or tranquilizers. Doctors were frustrated. Since George was silent, they couldn't ask him what was in his system. The tests came back clear. It had been too many days since he'd shot up for any heroin to register. There was nothing on the scan that could explain his symptoms. For all the doctors could tell, George was faking his condition. So they tried other, more creative means of waking George up. They poked and prodded him. They applied blunt, painful pressure to his fingernails. 
they waved potent smelling salts under his nose. Any one of these would register a reaction from a normal patient, but George didn't move. On the inside, he was screaming in agony, but he was trapped inside his own body, almost comatose. The medics sent him to the psychiatry unit. Maybe they would find a solution. However, the psychiatrists were just as perplexed. After two weeks of being passed between various medical professionals, there was still no answer in sight for George. On July 16, 1982, George was transferred to the Santa Clara Valley Medical Center in San Jose. There he was placed in the neurobehavioral unit under the care of attending physician, Dr. Phil Ballard. On that busy morning, Dr. Ballard read George's chart, a typical part of his rounds. But what he saw left him confused. He realized his boss, Dr. J. William Langston, had to see this patient for himself. As the founder of the neurobehavioral unit, Dr. Langston was especially interested in any unusual cases. The 39-year-old doctor had always been fascinated by the inner workings of the brain and dreamed of breaking new ground in the field of neurological research. However, Santa Clara Valley Medical Center rarely saw mysterious patients or inexplicable outbreaks. Most of his time was spent on routine diagnoses and treatment. His years of medical school and inquisitive mind were seemingly going to waste. Until he met George, who would challenge everything he knew about neurology and neurobehavior. According to Helio, neurobehavior is the study of how the brain works, how it affects emotion, behavior, and learning. And if things go wrong, that's where neurology comes into play. It's the study of disorders and conditions that affect the nervous system. Neurology is a particularly challenging field because there are so many unknowns. The brain is a complicated organ, and it takes only a minor misfire for things to go majorly wrong. According to Dr. Langston, while sophisticated imaging systems exist to image the brain, they are not sensitive enough to detect all small lesions. The nervous system cannot be observed directly. Instead, Dr. Langston had to observe George's symptoms indirectly by noting how he responded to stimuli and making logical deductions, which was tricky because when Dr. Langston began his examination, George, as usual, didn't move. The only signs of life were his breathing and the drool that continuously poured out of his slack mouth. Dr. Langston pulled George's arms out towards him. They hung in the air, then fell slowly over the next few minutes. Dr. Langston initially thought that George had catatonia. Harvard Health Publishing explains that catatonia is a motor dysregulation disorder characterized by immobility or slowed and delayed movement. One telltale symptom is waxy flexibility, meaning a person's range of motion is limited and their actions happen in slow motion, like a stiff mannequin made of wax. Although catatonia can have physical causes, it's typically associated with psychological conditions. To help narrow down his diagnosis, Langston conducted another test. He tapped George's forehead lightly between his eyebrows. 
This will cause anyone to blink at first, but a normal person will become used to the stimuli and eventually stop blinking. Dr. Langston continued tapping. George didn't stop blinking. This failure to stop blinking is known as Meyerson's sign. It indicates damage to the basal ganglia, the part of the brain that manages movement. After the tapping test, Dr. Langston asked George to open his eyes, but he just laid there. The room was still, and the only noise came from the ticking clock. Then, suddenly, there was a flutter in George's eyelid. Dr. Langston looked at his watch and noted the time. It took George 30 seconds to fully open his eyes. Dr. Langston suspected that George had eyelid apraxia, the inability to open his eyes. Combined with the other symptoms, it didn't make any sense. Catatonia, Meyerson's sign, and eyelid apraxia typically do not have any connection, nor do they tend to appear simultaneously. In fact, they all have fundamentally different causes. Dr. Langston wrote, the waxy flexibility indicated catatonia, a psychiatric condition, but the Meyerson sign and the eyelid apraxia pointed toward a neurological one. He consulted with his team of psychiatrists and neurology residents. Neither camp could agree if George's condition was psychological or physiological. Confused, Dr. Langston conducted another test. He took George's arm and tried to bend it. It was stiff, as if frozen. It took a tremendous amount of effort from the doctor to curl George's arm. And even when his elbow finally bent, it did so in, quote, fits and starts. With this, Dr. Langston assumed George had catatonic schizophrenia a psychological state that causes immobility and abnormal behavior. People with catatonic schizophrenia exhibit strange movements, maneuvering erratically, or in George's case, not at all. But Dr. Langston couldn't be sure. He wanted to monitor George for a few more days before he began any treatment. After a week of observation, nothing had changed, and George's lack of behavior didn't offer up any clues. Dr. Langston was disheartened, but had Dr. Ballard continued to care for George, perhaps he'd turn around in week two. On July 23, 1982, Dr. Ballard was making his rounds, and something incredible happened. He noticed George moving his fingers. It was the smallest twitch, but it was there. Dr. Ballard jumped to attention and placed a pencil in George's hand. He asked him to write his name. Slowly, painfully, George began to write out, George Carrillo. It took him 30 minutes to disclose everything on his mind via the notepad. I'm not sure what is happening to me. I know what I want to do. It just won't come out right. Reinvigorated, Dr. Langston asked him question after question. How long ago had his symptoms started? Had he done anything unusual before the condition began? And finally, what medications are you on? Have you taken anything? George painfully wrote out his answer, heroin. Dr. Langston was shocked 
But what George wrote next changed the course of the case. He spelled out the name Juanita, his girlfriend. After a few phone calls, Dr. Langston quickly realized that George's condition wasn't an isolated incident. Up next, Juanita exhibits the same frozen symptoms. Now, back to the story. On July 23, 1982, immobilized patient George Carrillo had a breakthrough. Finally able to communicate through writing, he told his doctor, J. William Langston, about his girlfriend Juanita and their heroin use. After this revelation, the physicians scoured the local phone book and found a number that matched the limited information George could provide. Dr. Langston called Juanita's family and learned that she was 30 years old and as frozen as her boyfriend. In fact, Juanita's family had been keeping her at home under constant care as her condition had progressively gotten worse. Dr. Langston had Juanita brought to his facility. After examining her, he was able to determine three things. One, whatever was happening to George and Juanita seemed to have the same cause. Two, it had begun the same night two weeks ago. Three, his patient's symptoms all fit the signs of advanced Parkinson's disease. According to the Mayo Clinic, Parkinson's disease is a progressive nervous system disorder that affects movement. It slowly deteriorates the brain cells that generate dopamine, the neurotransmitter that is essential for controlling motion. Most people who suffer from this condition are over 60, which is what really confounded Dr. Langston. His patients were exhibiting signs of Parkinson's disease, but they were both relatively young, and most alarmingly, their symptoms had developed overnight. In all his years of research, in all the patients he'd ever treated, Dr. Langston had never seen anything like this. And he wasn't sure how to ease their suffering. He had to start by finding its cause. Dr. Langston theorized that perhaps something in George and Juanita's apartment was the culprit. Maybe it was a carbon monoxide leak or something they ate. He wasn't ruling anything out. He also wondered if it could be the heroin they both took. But that seemed like a wild theory at best. After all, for better or worse, people used heroin all the time without becoming frozen. There was no apparent answer and no new developments. Dr. Langston and his colleague, Dr. Ballard, continually grew more frustrated with their lack of progress the past three weeks. Ballard needed to take a night off. On July 31st, he went to a party hosted by a friend who also happened to be a doctor. That's when things took an even more surprising turn. Dr. Ballard was enjoying his evening with friends, many of whom were fellow physicians. One, a fellow neurologist, mentioned an intriguing case that had landed in his clinic located 50 miles away. He told Dr. Ballard of two patients, the Sylvie brothers, who had been found lying frozen in their apartment. They'd been diagnosed with catatonic schizophrenia. Shocked and excited, Dr. Ballard pressed his friend for more details. 
He went on to tell Ballard how their mother had found them lying in their apartment and assumed they were intoxicated, as both brothers were addicts. And the brother's drug of choice was heroin. Dr. Ballard was speechless. Every detail of this case mirrored that of George and Juanita's. When Dr. Ballard told the news to Dr. Langston, it was a revelation. They began to suspect that the heroin was triggering these symptoms. Even though the patients didn't know each other and lived 50 miles apart, it was very possible they had the same drug dealer. Or worse, had injected heroin from the same bad batch, which had been distributed among multiple drug dealers. Dr. Langston had to alert the public. He couldn't stop people from using drugs, and he couldn't cure the condition yet, but maybe he could keep it from afflicting anyone else. He approached a couple of Northern California television news stations who picked up the story, warning of possible tainted heroin in Northern California. The broadcast reached thousands of locals, including physical therapist Jan Bartell. Sitting in her home, Jan flipped on the news and received a shock. In her physical therapy work, Jan had been paying home visits to a young woman named Connie. This doctor on TV was describing Connie's symptoms to a T. Connie had been diagnosed with paralysis, deemed hysterical in nature. Hysterical disorders are psychological conditions, just like catatonic schizophrenia. Connie's doctors thought her condition was psychosomatic. They'd hired Jan to help her get moving again, but nothing Jan tried had worked. Until she saw Dr. Langston on TV and realized Connie was likely misdiagnosed. After Jan talked to them, Connie's family brought her to the clinic. They hoped Dr. Langston could cure their daughter. At 21 years old, Connie was the fifth and youngest of the frozen addicts. And she was worse off than any of the other patients. Her symptoms were more exaggerated. She took a full 40 seconds to open her eyes when prompted. She was also covered in painful bed sores from lying motionless for weeks. Connie's family told Dr. Langston that she'd begun abusing hard drugs when she met her boyfriend, Toby Govia. Toby was a large-scale heroin distributor who occasionally dipped into his own supply, and he had a brand new batch. When Dr. Langston inquired about Toby's whereabouts, he learned he was in jail and that he was frozen. Separated by the law, both Connie and Toby had come down with the frozen symptoms around the same time as George, Juanita, and David and Bill Sylvie. This new lead confirmed Dr. Langston's previous suspicions. A single batch of heroin seemed to be the epicenter of the affliction. Suddenly, Dr. Langston was desperate to get his hands on the heroin, relating to his patients in a whole new way. If he could get a sample of Toby's batch, he could send it to a lab for analysis and isolate whatever unique chemicals could be causing the paralysis. He had to do it fast. The doctor was worried that the increasingly ill Connie would die before he could solve the mystery and properly treat her. Luckily for Dr. Langston, after the Sylvie brothers had been discovered in their catatonic state, the Watsonville police had raided their apartment. 
The police had confiscated a few bundles of heroin and were happy to send Dr. Langston samples for testing. Feeling more like a detective than a doctor, Dr. Langston sent the samples to the lab. He was anxious for the results and called for an update nearly every day, with no luck. He worried. It felt like the testing was taking longer than it should have. Perhaps there wasn't anything unique in this batch of heroin at all, and he'd have to go back to square one. Even worse, Connie's condition kept deteriorating, reaching a dangerous point. Despite the advanced medical care she was receiving, her bed sores posed a major risk of infection. Since she couldn't speak, she had to be watched carefully for sudden downturns. The other patients lay in terror in their beds, unable to call out, move, or ask questions. They were prisoners in their own bodies. Dr. Langston could only imagine how horrible it was for all of them. Each day that he crossed off the calendar waiting for results was another of torture for his patients. Through late July 1982, he only grew more anxious. Until the lab finally called. But when Dr. Langston picked up the phone, he didn't get the answer he expected. The lab's results were inconclusive. This meant that whatever the sample was, it wasn't pure heroin. Heroin is derived from the seed of opium poppy flowers. But this was something synthetic, and the lab had no idea what it was. No known drug generated the freezing effect his patients were experiencing. No matter how many tests the lab did, or how they isolated or extracted the substance, no match for the sample could be found. This isn't as shocking as it might seem. In the 1980s, designer drugs hit the streets with a bang. According to Science Direct, designer drugs, or club drugs, emerged as a legal loophole. The government didn't know what the new substances were, so they couldn't outlaw them and couldn't prosecute anyone caught making, taking, or selling them. So in 1982, all synthetic drugs were technically legal, including whatever was in this batch of heroin. Without any sense of what the substance contained, Dr. Langston was back to square one. The lab assured him they would do everything in their power to identify the substance. But it would take even more time, something Dr. Langston's patients didn't have. Up next, the lab races to identify the designer drug. Now, back to the story. In late 1982, Dr. Langston's six patients exhibited signs of what looked like advanced Parkinson's disease. But the afflicted were too young and their terrifying symptoms had set in too quickly for that to be the case. While Dr. Langston struggled to treat his frozen patients, the lab results he had been waiting on came back inconclusive. Luckily for Langston, there was another break in the case. There had recently been an explosion in a garage in the San Jose area. Jim Norris, head of the Santa Clara County Crime Lab, suspected that the tenant, a man named Vincent Mason, had been cooking drugs when the explosion occurred. But Officer Norris couldn't pinpoint the substance they found. 
He began to suspect that it was a designer drug and wondered if it was the same one used by the frozen addicts he'd heard about. If he could match the sample from Vincent Mason's garage to the samples found in the home of patients David and Bill Sylvie, he might be able to secure a conviction on grounds that the substance was harming people. Officer Norris contacted Dr. Langston, who agreed to give him samples of the synthetic heroin his patients had injected. Officer Norris took the samples to his crime lab, while Dr. Langston anxiously waited to hear back from his own lab. After weeks of waiting without results, Dr. Langston had to do something. He decided to lean into his one major theory, that his patients had somehow contracted advanced Parkinson's disease. It seemed like a wild supposition. Most of his patients were in their 20s, while the oldest, George, was only 42. Nevertheless, he put his hypothesis to the test and prescribed a drug called L-DOPA. L-DOPA helps the brain generate dopamine, reversing the lack of dopamine that causes Parkinson's. It allows patients to move more normally, and when it was introduced in the 1960s, it was advertised as a miracle cure. But L-DOPA soon became known for its severe side effects, including hallucinations, spasms, and abnormal heart rhythms. Even knowing the risk, Dr. Langston took a chance. He gave George and Juanita a dose of L-DOPA and kept them under careful observation. A short while later, George wiggled his fingers, then finally his hands, arms, and legs. For the first time in weeks, Juanita smiled. They were able to walk and move again. They were able to speak. They were able to relate the horrors that they'd felt, the fear of being frozen and not knowing why. The other four patients were given L-DOPA and all began to unfreeze. It was the moment they'd been waiting for the miracle cure. However, L-DOPA was not a perfect solution. It didn't actually cure Parkinson's, it merely masked the symptoms. Although patients were able to move and speak, if they stopped taking L-DOPA or even missed one dose, their symptoms would immediately return. L-DOPA users could sometimes suddenly lose their motor control. They might be driving a car down the street when suddenly they couldn't push their foot down on the gas pedal, or cooking dinner only to find themselves unable to remove a burning pan from the stove, holding a baby, and then dropping the child. Further, even if a patient maintained their dosage of L-DOPA, it didn't stop their neurons from dying, even further lessening their brain's ability to produce dopamine. Still, L-DOPA was a solution, if not the perfect one. And there was nothing else on the market they could try, at least not until they got a final answer from the lab. Dr. Langston hoped George, Juanita, and the other frozen addicts wouldn't have to remain on L-DOPA for the rest of their lives. But he had no way of knowing how likely recovery was. However, He got another piece of the puzzle when the lab finally called again. After all of these weeks of waiting, they discovered what the mysterious chemical was. Six or more lives hinged on this discovery. 
The lab believed that the drug was a synthetic narcotic compound called MPTP. While MPTP had no psychoactive effects, it is very similar to another compound called MPPP, which is a common synthetic opioid sold on the streets as heroin. The two are similar. A drug maker could accidentally create MPTP while trying to make MPPP. This is exactly what had happened with Vincent Mason, the drug cooker whose garage had exploded. It was confirmed when Mason came down with the Parkinson's-like symptoms himself and approached Dr. Langston for treatment. Now that Dr. Langston knew what the drug was, he could look for a better treatment plan. He began experiments to learn more about how MPTP was giving people the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. He injected laboratory rats and monkeys with the compound to see if they developed movement problems. The rats exhibited less of a response, but the monkeys developed Parkinson's. This led Dr. Langston to understand that his patients, too, weren't just exhibiting the symptoms of Parkinson's. That's what they actually had. Next, Dr. Langston had to determine how MPTP had snaked its way into the brain and caused such a complex disease. After all, Parkinson's usually develops slowly over time in the elderly. The brain is an intricate and sophisticated organ. It is also vulnerable. Once a nerve cell in the brain dies, it is gone forever. But the brain has several lines of defense. To start, it floats in cerebrospinal fluid. According to Medline Plus, cerebrospinal fluid helps protect the brain and spinal cord by acting like a cushion against sudden impact or injury. The brain and spinal cord are also protected by three layers of membranes and encased in bone. Further, blood vessels in the brain are extremely tight so as not to allow anything but the smallest molecules inside. But somehow, the MPTP had gotten through these defenses and impacted the patient's brains, specifically its dopamine production. Langston had never seen a synthetic drug cause damage like this before. Neither had anyone else. What Dr. Langston was working with was entirely new. So he had to consider every piece of information, every abnormality, as a possible clue. In studying George's MRI results, Dr. Langston noticed a very tiny lesion or abnormal damage in his brain. The MPTP exited George's bloodstream through the brain lesion and wreaked havoc. Dr. Langston believed this was what had happened with the other five patients as well. All it took was the tiniest hole to destroy an entire nervous system. But the L-DOPA seemed to be working for the time being. So the frozen addicts were sent home with prescriptions. Since brain cells cannot regrow, the damage was done forever. They would all remain L-DOPA users for life. Two years later, in 1984, George was still suffering. Though he wasn't frozen, every time he opened his eyes, he thought he saw spiders everywhere, crawling over every inch of him. 
the El Dopo was causing constant hallucinations. Juanita didn't fare much better. Although she avoided the dark hallucinations, she couldn't work because her movements were uncontrollable, especially right after her El Dopa doses. She never wanted to leave the house because she walked strangely. Her family reported that all she did was sit around, depressed. Dr. Langston's heart ached for his patients. He still searched for a cure and performed additional research, anything to stop this painful condition from affecting more lives. And in 1988, he heard of a possible cure. Swedish doctors had developed an experimental surgical treatment, implanting fetal tissue in patients' brains. The doctors hoped it would help cells regenerate and possibly cure or slow down the Parkinson's. The catch? It required the patients to fly to Sweden. The medical use of fetal tissue was illegal in the U.S. Despite the grueling trip and moral gray area, Dr. Langston eagerly referred his six patients. 48-year-old George flew to Sweden, desperate for an end to his hallucinations. After the surgery, George flew home where he'd be monitored by Dr. Langston through his recovery. As he recovered, George was able to better control his movements, his facial expressions, his hands. Although he still suffered some limitations to his mobility, he no longer relied on L-Dopa. The hallucinations ceased, allowing him some peace. Two of the other patients traveled to Sweden for the surgery, but they had much less success than George. There was still so much doctors didn't know about the brain, Parkinson's disease, and how to treat it. But they were making new breakthroughs every day, in part because of the frozen addicts. In nature, humans are the only species that can develop Parkinson's disease. This makes it difficult for researchers to develop new treatments due to the ethical considerations around human testing. But when Dr. Langston discovered that MPTP could cause Parkinson's, even in other species, he opened new avenues of research. Doctors could recreate Parkinson's in a lab and thus study and observe the disease's progression. And thanks to the breakthrough, Dr. Langston came to be regarded as one of the leaders in the field of Parkinson's research. He finally achieved his dream of breaking down the boundaries of neuroscience. He has published roughly 360 peer review articles and a book, and founded the Parkinson's Institute. Unfortunately, there still is no cure for Parkinson's disease. The Parkinson's Foundation Prevalence Project estimates that 930,000 people in the United States live with it today. That number is predicted to rise by 1.2 million people in 2030. Those figures don't include the frozen addicts. They spent the final years of their lives battling Parkinson's and the side effects of L-DOPA. As of 2013, all but one of the original six had passed away. However, there have been no new reported cases of mysterious freezing from synthetic drugs. The initial frozen addicts were seemingly isolated cases. And although their suffering led to exciting breakthroughs in medical research, George Carrillo and the others paid a dear price. 
They could have never known their fate when they shot up all those years ago, and all from one bad batch, one unlucky choice to use, one fateful moment in time. A moment with a lifetime of consequence. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. For more information on the case of the frozen addicts, we found Dr. Langston's book, The Case of the Frozen Addicts, especially helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Monica Labadia, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Thank you.